You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with your host, Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. And of course, this is the time of year that celebrates the full realization of the promise of Judaism in uh, an additional way, extra special way, because of course, this is a time of year with Christmas when the promise of Judaism that was to for have the Messiah come, the Jewish Messiah come, the Messiah who had been prayed for and longed for and sought by the Jewish people for about 2,000 years, come in order to reestablish a, a new rela- establish a new relationship, reestablish the original relationship between God and mankind for all the world, and in fact establish a far superior relationship between God and mankind for the whole world, and even was present with Adam and Eve. And uh, this uh, fulfillment of Judaism, this realization of the promise of Judaism with the birth of the Messiah is, of course, celebrated on Christmas. But today is uh, uh, is essentially the Feast of the Epiphany. The Feast of the Epiphany occurs on January 6th, 12 days after Christmas. It's, in fact, you know, the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. It's the reason why Christmas has 12 days is because the bookend kind of closing Christmas is the Epiphany. Of course, uh, nowadays in the United States, uh, Epiphany has been moved to um, a nearby Sunday, so tomorrow. But in fact, Vigil Mass today is already going to be also an Epiphany Mass. So I want to spend today talking about the Feast of Epiphany, and in particular, how deeply linked the Feast of Epiphany is to the transformation of Judaism into Catholicism. Now, the reason why Epiphany is particularly relevant to this program is because if you think about it, Christmas was the revelation of the Jewish Messiah, you could say, to his own people, to the Jews. Because of course, you know, when he was born in Bethlehem, everyone around him, he was born in the heart of the Jewish nation. Uh, He was born in the city of David, right? And David is the founder of the Jewish nation not of the Jewish people, but of the Jewish nation. And, um, of course, he was born among Jews to Jews, and the people who came to worship at his crib, the shepherds were his own people, were Jews. And then at Epiphany, it was his revelation to the Gentiles, so to speak, because the three magi, the three kings who came from distant lands, were not Jews. And it was the revelation of the coming of the Messiah, of God as man, to the rest of the world, to the nations, to the non-Jewish world. So um, it is actually, Epiphany is in some sense, it is the, um, you know, I begin the show by talking about the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church. Epiphany is kind of, you could think of as almost that, that moment when the promise of Judaism exploded outwards into the non-Jewish world. Now, the Feast of Epiphany, um, we think of in the context of celebrating the visit of the three kings, which there is no reason not to think happened on the 12th day after Christmas. But 
uh, in Catholic tradition, and even more so in, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, three events are celebrated as having occurred on the same day, only on different years. Those three events are the visit of the three kings to the infant Jesus in Bethlehem, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan by John the Baptist, and the uh, miracle at the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus' first public miracle, when he turned the water into wine. And in Catholic tradition, all three events happened on the same day. And in the Eastern Church, actually, uh, all three events are celebrated on the same day, on the 12th day after Christmas, on Epiphany. However, the Western Church has decided to give the baptism in the Jordan its own feast day and the miracle at Cana its own uh, day of celebration because it didn't want those wonderful events to be overshadowed by the visit of the three kings. In other words, if all three were celebrated on the Feast of the Epiphany, people wouldn't be paying that much attention to the baptism in the Jordan or paying that much attention to the miracle at Cana because it would be so overwhelmed by this um, uh, the celebration of the visit of the three kings. So the Western Church, over time, separated out the days of celebration without stopping to believe, in other words, without changing the belief that they actually all happened on the same date in different years. Uh, the, uh, in, in, um, to be fair to Catholic tradition, the date of the wedding feast at Cana is not held as known for certain on the same level that the, fee, that the uh, visit of the three kings and the baptism in the Jordan in the ancient church were held as known for certain as happening on the same day, on the 12th day after Christmas. Um, so let me read a little bit from the liturgical year by Dom Garen Jay. Now, if you don't know the liturgical year... I can't recommend it too highly. It is a, ooh, I don't know what it is, about a 20-volume set of books that were put together by a Benedictine monk, I believe, uh, certainly in the first part of the 20th century, 1920s or 30s, I believe. Um, and it goes through basically every day of the liturgical year with um, a historical exposition, with pious meditation, with the mass texts, obviously the pre-Vatican II mass texts for the year. And it's a wonderful way to, to celebrate the unfolding of the church year day by day. And actually it's a very good way to start your day. I mean, it's a, it's a good form of morning prayer every morning is to read Dom Garanger's liturgical year for that day. And uh, it's available for free uh, PDF downloads on the internet. Uh, it's a long since out of copyright. So it's completely legitimate and legal to download it off the internet. internet. Uh, if you just uh, search for, you know, a liturgical year in quotes or something, uh, you'll probably find it without too much difficulty. Uh, Dom Geringer is spelled uh, uh, G-U-E-R-A-N. G-E-R is his last name. If you search for that, you'll find it. It's also available in, in print, but uh, as I said, in 20 volumes, so it's on the expensive side. It's probably a couple of hundred dollars for the 20-volume for the 20 set. 
Anyway, so I'll read a little bit about what he says about Epiphany, and then I will talk about the underlying dynamic of the um, spreading of Judaism into the Gentile world um, uh, that's, that's kind of encapsulated in Epiphany. So turning to Dom Garanger, the Epiphany is indeed a great feast, and the joy caused us by the birth of our Jesus must be renewed on it. For as though it were a second Christmas day, it shows us our incarnate God in a new light. It leaves all the sweetness of the dear babe of Bethlehem who has appeared to us already in love. But to this it adds its own grand manifestation of the divinity of our Jesus. At Christmas, it was a few shepherds that were invited by the angels to go and recognize the word made flesh. But now at the epiphany, the voice of God himself calls the whole world to adore this Jesus and to hear him. In the early church, they were united in the one same epiphany, three manifestations of Jesus's glory. The mystery of the Magi coming from the east under the guidance of a star and adoring the infant of Bethlehem as the divine king. The mystery of the baptism of Christ, who, while standing in the waters of the Jordan, was proclaimed by the eternal father as the son of God. And thirdly, the mystery of divine power of the same Jesus, when he changed the water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana. Now, let me, uh, this is, of course, Roy talking again. Let me uh, elaborate a little bit. Note that these three events that happened on the same day in different years all were proclamations of the divinity of Jesus. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem at Christmas was an announcement, so to speak, of the incarnation of the humanity, of the human nature of Jesus. The epiphany, when his uh, uh, divinity was shown to the three magi, or, or manifested the three magi, was a proclamation of his divinity. The baptism in the Jordan, when the heavens opened and God the Father's voice came forth and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, is a manifestation of Jesus's divinity. And changing the water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana, the, the first public ministry is, of course, a manifestation of Jesus's divinity. So one can think of Christmas as the uh, manifestation of, of uh, Christ's humanity and of the epiphany as the manifestation of Christ's divinity. As I said earlier, you can think also of Christmas as the introduction of the Messiah to the Jews and epiphany as the introduction of the Messiah to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. Um, then, uh, then Dom Garanger goes on to discuss whether the three mysteries really take place on the same date. His answer is that with regards to the visit of the Magi and the baptism in the Jordan, there is no doubt among the essentially church fathers and, and devout Catholic writers as to the wedding uh, marriage feast of Cana, it's far less certain. Um, now, uh, okay, on to back to Dom Garanger, that the mystery of the vocation of the Gentiles should be made thus prominent by the Church of Rome is not to be wondered at. For by that heavenly vocation, which in the three magi called all nations to the admirable light of faith, Rome, which till then had been the head of the Gentile world, was made the head of the Christian church and of the whole human race. 
Now, that's a very interesting observation he's making. If you, if you think about it, of course, Judaism was the center of, of uh, excuse me, Jerusalem was the center of Judaism. And um, Bethlehem is, by the way, a short walk from Jerusalem. It's about five miles um, before there was so much violent tension in the area. Um, it was a very easy and pleasant way to visit Bethlehem. It was like an hour's walk from Jerusalem. So it's essentially, you know, outside Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem was the center of Judaism and, uh, Judaism was God's self-revelation to the Jewish people with the, um, transition, uh, between, from Judaism into its fulfillment in the Catholic church, God's manifestation shifted from being, uh, uniquely to the Jewish people to being to the Gentile world and the center of God's religion shifted from being Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish people, to Rome, which was at the time the center of the Gentile world. So in a way, the um, relationship between Christmas and Epiphany is reflected in the relationship between Judaism being centered in Jerusalem and Christianity being centered in Rome. Back to Dom Geringer. Um uh, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping, that's uh, skipping over what I can. So that's, uh, I apologize for the short hesitation. Uh, let us then open our hearts, to the joy of this grand day. And on this feast of the theophany of the holy lights of the three Kings, let us look with love at the dazzling beauty of our divine son, who as the psalmist expresses it, runs his course as a giant and pours out upon us floods of a welcome and yet most vivid light. Mary, the throne of divine wisdom, welcomes all the members of this court with her gracious smile of mother and queen. She offers her son to man for his adoration and to God that he may be well pleased. God manifests himself to men because he is great, but he manifests himself by Mary because he is full of mercy. Let us return to the triumph of our sweet savior and king his magnificence is manifested to us so brightly on this feast. Our mother, the church, is going to initiate us into the mysteries we see and celebrate. Let us imitate the faith and obedience of the Magi. Let us adore with the Holy Baptist, the divine lamb, over whom the heavens open. Let us take our place at the mystic feast of Cana, where our dear king is present, thrice manifested and thrice glorified. In the last two mysteries, let us not lose sight of the babe of Bethlehem. And in the babe of Bethlehem, let us not cease to recognize the great God in whom the Father was well pleased and the supreme ruler and creator of all things. So you see what Dom Geringer is doing here, again, is kind of like underlining this incredible beauty of the relationship between Christmas and Epiphany. In Christmas, we are adoring and celebrating the pure love of the sweet babe of Bethlehem. And in Epiphany, we are celebrating and adoring the magnificent, exalted divinity of, of Christ God. And yet, they are two sides of the same coin. They are one and the same person. And because of the 
you know, exploding uh, uh, weight and significance and glory of those two sides of the coin, so to speak. Um, they are they are separated in in the Feast of Christmas and the Feast of Epiphany, and they are joined together in the relationship between the Feast of Christmas and the Feast of Epiphany. Boy, I hope that made sense to you. Um, I think it's unspeakably beautiful, um, unspeakably beautiful. So I think uh, usually around halfway through the show, I take a short uh, musical break, and I'm uh, going to do that now in a moment or two. Um, and uh, this is a live show. This I don't have a um, dedicated guest for the show, obviously. So it's a good time, a good show on which to call in if anyone wishes to call in with a question or a comment. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And uh, if you call in during the break, I will uh, check for any calls coming out of the break and first take the calls. And um, if there aren't any calls or after the calls, I'll go back to this discussion talking about talking about this relationship between God's initial revelation of himself through Judaism to the Jewish people in order to um, explode that revelation to the whole world through Christ and his revelation to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles, to all the nations of the world, and how that that um, transformation, how that uh, kind of a relationship between those two things, the, the restricted revelation um, initially to the Jews and then the um, universal revelation to the rest of the world is already foreshadowed in many of the stories of the Old Testament and is also um, underlies many of the parables of Jesus. So that's what I'll talk about in the second half of the show. With that, let's turn to our uh, short musical break, and I'll be back in a few moments. And again, the number here, if you wish to call in, is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And with that, I'll be back in a few moments.
listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. When I return to our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with your host, Roy Showman. Hi, welcome back. We've been uh, talking the show about Epiphany and the way that Epiphany celebrates the um, revelation of God as man to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentile world. Uh, symbolized by the three kings, by the revelation of, of um, Jesus' divinity to three kings. And therefore, it is kind of a springboard to a consideration of the relationship between God's revelation of himself through Jesus uh, uh, through the, as the Jewish Messiah, first to the Jews and then to the rest of the world. Um, again, if anyone wishes to call in with a question or a comment, the number here is 866 866- Three 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 six two seven nine or eight six six three 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 Mary. But with that, until somebody does call, um, I will go on with this line of discussion. And in order to introduce it, I'm going to be reading a couple of passages from my book "Salvation is from the Jews: The Role of Judaism in Salvation History from Abraham to the Second Coming." And I will be reading a section that in the book is called Jews and Gentiles in the Early Church, which kind of talks about this um, contrast between Jesus first coming to the Jews and then uh, coming to the uh, rest of the world, to the Gentiles. Gentile, by the way, uh, in this context simply means, uh, basically, the Jewish people are, of course, a religion. Judaism is a religion, but the Jewish people are an ethnic group. Um, they're, in principle, they're descendants of one patriarch of, of Abraham through his son Isaac. Uh, they are they're an ethnicity, an ethnic group. And uh, Gentiles is simply every other ethnic group. It's every human being who's not a member of that ethnic group. Uh, in fact, Gentiles 
the underlying Hebrew word that ends up being translated as Gentiles is actually just means nations. It's just every other nation. It's every other tribe besides the Jews. So I just wanted to define my terms, I guess. But uh, so here's my the text, and then I'll talk off the text. At its inception, the church was entirely Jewish. All of the very first members of the church, the apostles, the disciples, and the center and heart of the church, the Blessed Virgin Mary, were Jews. During his life and ministry, Jesus repeatedly stated that the salvation which he brought was meant, at least at first, preferentially for Jews. We see that when he commissioned the disciples to go out and preach the good news, he actually restricted their evangelization to Jews. Uh, In Matthew 10, uh, Jesus says, well, I'll just read the passage, these 12 uh, apostles, 12 disciples, Jesus sent out charging them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and preach as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you see that when Jesus initially sent out his disciples, he sent them out with the instructions not to go to anyone who wasn't Jewish. There are also a couple of cases in the New Testament where uh, non-Jews tried to approach Jesus and Jesus uh, rejected them on the basis that they weren't Jews. Matthew 15, the passage is, uh, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and cried, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, My daughter is severely possessed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him. And he answered, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I'm going to interrupt myself here. Um, Jesus is setting something up. He's not really rejecting the Gentiles. He's pointing out that he first came to the house of Israel and he was essentially rejected by the Jews. And, um, and, uh, when he was rejected by the Jews, he went to the Gentiles, not because he wasn't planning to go to the Gentiles and not because the Gentiles weren't equally important to him, but because it was such a significant thing that his own people rejected him. And the fact that his own people rejected him, of course, colored the rest of salvation history the Jews' rejection of Jesus, and it it was kind of underlined by this progression of him first coming to the Jews and kind of waiting to be rejected by them before going to the Gentiles. Remember that the very beginning of the Gospel of St. John, in, in John 1, verse 11, uh, St. John says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The fact that Jesus came onto his own, that's the Jewish people, and they rejected him is kind of at the center of the narrative of the unfolding of salvation history. And so this is reflected in his behavior in the Gospels and his first uh, restricting his mission to the Jews and only in the face of their rejection of him, extending it to the Gentiles. And in fact, the continuation of this very same a parable or story actually that I've been reading is a image of that. So anyway, as I said, Jesus's first response to this Canaanite woman was, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I will continue with the story. 
But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not fair to take the bread that belongs to the children and throw to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Um, so you see that, that um, I, I mean, I'll just go back to my text. It is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children clearly represent the Jews. And Jesus's mission was initially um, visibly directed to them. But when he said, or when she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table, that reflects the fact that when the children, that is the Jews, are so careless or unappreciative that they let the food fall to the ground, don't take advantage of what Jesus is offering them, then the right to it passes to the Gentiles. This theology was also explicitly stated by St. Paul, quote, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, shows that the Jews were the initial target of Jesus' mission. And, there, the, and then a quote from Romans 11, quote, the Jews' rejection of the gospel means the reconciliation of the world. That is, that the reconciliation of the world, that is the inclusion of the Gentiles into the new covenant, has come about as a result of the Jews' rejection of Jesus. Now, I'm going to interject here. This can sound harsher than the underlying reality, because it isn't that um, Jesus' plan was only to come to the Jews, and only because the Jews rejected him did he go to the Gentiles. That would be absurd. Um, that's not what's going on here. But what's going on here is that the unfolding of salvation history has this uh, central pattern of the, basically, of the initial recipient of the blessing, of the extraordinary blessing of God, being in some sense unworthy of it, not appreciative of it, rejecting it or, or failing to live up to it. And as a result, that extraordinary special blessing is extended to, uh, to someone else. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's extended to the second son, so I'll, I'll go into that a bit, little bit now. We see this in both the story of Cain and Abel and the story of Esau and Jacob. In both cases, uh, in the case of Cain and Abel, Cain was the um, eldest son and so would have received um, the father's special blessing. The Old Testament is characterized by the eldest son uh, having a very special blessing and, a, and basically the inheritance too. Um, and um, uh, Cain, as the eldest, would have been entitled to it, but he was unworthy and Abel was favored. And the most, most dramatic example is the case of Esau and Jacob, uh, um, Isaac's sons, because Esau was the eldest and Isaac was on his deathbed and was going to give um, to give this special blessing to the eldest son, to Esau, but Esau was unworthy of it. And incidentally, through the intercession of the mother, who is a picture of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Jacob, the younger son, who was not initially the one who was intended to receive the blessing, received it instead because he was worthy of it. So this pattern 
is it's actually a foreshadowing of the pattern of the blessing, God's special blessing being extended first to the Jews, and then when they did not prove themselves worthy of it, being extended to um, the nations. Uh, again, not because God cared less about the nations, but just because this is like a mystery of the way the economy of salvation unfolds. Now, there are a number of New Testament parables that address this very same issue. Um, so I, will, I think I will spend the last uh, 15 minutes or so of the show talking about them. Uh, one of them, of course, which does uh, expresses it uh, very quite explicitly, is the parable of the prodigal son. I think um, uh, most of us are, are familiar with the parable, but um, it's certainly worth reading, so I'll read it. And um, I mean, all of these parables have multiple meanings. I'm not saying that the sequence of salvation history of being, uh, salvation first being extended to the Jews and then being passed on to the Gentiles as a result of the Jews' refusal of it or unworthiness of it is is um, the only or even the primary meaning of these parables, but it certainly is reflected in these parables. Um, so this is reading from Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11. Uh, Jesus said, quote, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that falls to me. And so the father divided his living between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in loose living. And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country, and he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and make merry, for this is my son that was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began, and they began to make merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and he came and drew near the house and heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what this meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. But the elder son was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Lo, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. 
he was lost and is found. Now, this is a perfect picture of um, of the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And there are many, many um, details in this story that make it quite clear that this is one of the meanings of the parable. Now, the elder son represents the Jews, the first ones to receive God's blessing. Um, the ones who received God's blessing by their primogeniture, so to speak, by their being the eldest son, by being the first chosen, the firstborn, so to speak. Um, just like uh, just like Esau versus Jacob and so forth. Excuse me, I'm going to have to... <coughs> and the, um, the younger son represents the, uh, the Gentiles. Now, the... Um, uh, the father represents God, and they were both his sons, but the Gentiles estranged themselves from God, went into a distant country, um, did not um, live in God's house, so to speak. And um, this is shown in this parable by the fact that the younger son uh, went to a distant country, and what did he do there? He fed swine. Now, of course, swine, pigs are the emblem of what is not kosher. They're the emblem of what the Gentiles participate in and the Jews don't participate in. Um, they're absolutely the, the, the symbol of all that is unclean from a Jewish perspective, but embraced by the Gentiles. And so the younger son went to this foreign country, estranged himself from God, left God's house, so to speak, left the father's house, and ended up... Um, feeding swine, um, being in this, this, um, this, uh, emblematic, uh, Gentile situation, so to speak, um, in the poverty of that situation, he saw the error of his ways and went back to the father's house, uh, God, but he reapproached God. And this is very significant, not from the position of saying, you know, I'm your son, remember I'm your son. And therefore, I'm in want, even though I squandered my inheritance, you owe me, you know, you owe it to me to take me back in. You owe it to me to restore my sonship or whatever. That's not what he said, right? He said, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but let me at least be one of your servants. So he threw himself on the mercy of his father, seeing that he wasn't entitled to anything. The elder son, who represents the Jews, had the opposite attitude, right? He wasn't totally entitled to everything. And he resented the generosity of his father in receiving back his younger son. Um, this doesn't speak well of the Jews, but it is a picture of the Jews as the elder son who felt entitled and did not recognize the gift that they were getting from their father. They're the gift that they were getting from God because they felt they were entitled to it. Now, this is this this dynamic of the Jews having first been in relationship with God and feeling entitled to that relationship, while the Gentiles were out of relationship to God and therefore were full of gratitude for the sovereign mercy of God when they entered into relationship with him is exactly the reason why, in the unfolding of divine providence, God arranged that the Jews should... I, you know, these words like arranged are dangerous, but God had it happen that the Jews should reject him 
so that just as the Gentiles came from a state of disobedience to God into relationship with God when they entered the church, the Jews, when they came into relationship with God, had to come into relationship with God from a state of disobedience so that it would be they would appreciate it as a sovereign gift of God and not feel like they were entitled to it like the elder son did in the parable of the um, prodigal son. And um, lest you think I'm making this up, let me turn to Romans 11, St. Paul in Romans 11, near the end of the chapter, where uh, St. Paul makes it totally explicit that uh, this is why the Jews had to pass through this period of disobedience. That's the period between the first and second coming where they are being essentially unfaithful to God or out of relationship with God so that when they can come into the church and come into the fullness of relationship with God, which they had before the first coming of Christ, they will also have the attitude of gratitude and not the attitude of entitlement, that they will have the attitude of the prodigal son because, of course, we're all prodigal sons, uh, they'll have the attitude of the prodigal son and not uh, the attitude of the elder son. So let me uh, turn to that passage in Romans 11, starting with verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and then all Israel will be saved. As regards the gospel, there are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all men to disobedience, that he may have mercy upon all." God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. You see, that is, in God's wisdom, his way of avoiding the elder son syndrome, his way of avoiding the um, danger of the Jews when they come into the ultimate relationship with God, which is offered through the Catholic Church and the sacraments, to, to protect them from having the attitude of the elder son that, come on, we've always been good, we've always been faithful, we deserve this, and not be on their knees in speechless thanksgiving for the immensity of this unmerited, unearnable, impossible-to-earn gift of God which he's given us in, frankly, our divinization, in our having a share in his divine life for all eternity. The elder son did not deserve his inheritance, um, the younger son does not deserve his inheritance, but because the younger son went through a period of disobedience, when he came to the father, it was on his knees in humility and thanksgiving, whereas the elder son stood proud in arrogance. And um, when the Jews come to God, they have to come to God on their knees in humility and thanksgiving and gratitude, not standing upright like that elder son. So that's why... The Jews were not allowed, so to speak, to come directly into the church from their elder son position of, of already being in relationship with God, but they had to have this passage through separation so that they would have the proper uh, gratitude when they came. 
um, I hope this is clear. Let me go back now, if I can find it um, in time, to what I had been talking about, because, of course, this picture, um, uh, this, this picture of um, Jew versus Gentile and the Gentile having the attitude of gratitude versus the, the danger of the Jews having the attitude of entitlement, um, you know, is at the heart of this mystery in some sense. It's at the heart of all the other parables, by the way, which I did not have time to get to today. But I will just read one other passage from the New Testament, Matthew 8, which is the story of the centurion. Again, it's a story of this, this uh, interplay between the Jews and the Gentiles and the initial blessing and the humility of the Gentiles. So uh, starting with verse 5. As Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, beseeching him, saying, My servant is lying paralyzed at home in terrible distress. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard him, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. Now, of course, um, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The first of those, in some sense, we saw today, Epiphany, the three magi, the three kings who came from east and west and sat at the table, so to speak, uh, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while many of the Jews who were in Bethlehem then, in Jerusalem when Jesus entered, and they, you know, lined the Mount of Olives saying, Hosanna to the son of David, and then rejected him, um, you know, three days later, four days later. And the words of the centurion of this non-Jew, who basically did not see, think he was entitled to the grace that came through Jesus, but threw himself on his knees and in humility begged it as a sovereign act of the mercy of God, that his words are said at every Mass for the last 2,000 years. Domine non sum dignus edentris subtecta meum satantem de verbo et senabatur anima mea. Lord, I am not worthy to receive you under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. So that is the picture. In some sense, that's a picture of today. That's a picture of epiphany. That's a picture of the blessing that originally came to the Jews on Christmas, but then on epiphany, was spread throughout the Gentile world, and as the Jews were the first recipients of that blessing, the time came for the nations of the world to be the primary recipients of that blessing until after a period of disobedience, the Jews shall, after a period of disobedience, which the end of which will be marked by the full number of the Gentiles coming in, the, Jew, the veil, the hardening of the Jews, as St. Paul said in Romans 11, will cease, the veil will be lifted from the eyes of the Jews, and they too will come into the church, but with this beautiful attitude, 
Lord, I am not worthy to receive you under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And with that, we've come to the end of our time for today on this very, very beautiful feast day of Epiphany. I want to wish you a very, very, very blessed end of the season of Christmas and continuation of these beautiful feasts of of, of January and a very blessed 2018. And I hope you uh, enjoy this show. And I hope you in 2018 continue to listening to us on Radio Maria, Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. That's all the time we have for today. Bye for now.